Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. What's going on in health and wellness this week? We've got the latest info and tips to help you take care of your body, your brain, and your well being. Hello, I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer, and my guest today is Dr. Dean Ornish. Dr. Ornish is the founder and president of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute, clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the author of six books, all national bestsellers. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Ornish. Now, many listeners will know you from your diet program, but from those that don't, can you describe it a little to our listeners? Sure. The, for the last 40 years, I've directed a series of randomized controlled trials and demonstration projects showing for the first time that these simple lifestyle changes, eat well, move more, stress less, love more, uh, the more diseases we study and the more uh, underlying biological mechanisms we look at, the more reasons we have to explain why these simple changes are so powerful and how quickly people can get better. And as you know, we first started 40 years ago showing for the first time that heart disease was reversible. We showed that uh, for the first time that men with early-stage prostate cancer could slow, stop, or even reverse the progression of their, their disease. And what's true for prostate cancer is likely to be true for breast cancer as well. Heart, you know, type 2 diabetes uh, can often be reversed, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Even though what happens when most people get put on medications to lower their blood pressure or blood sugar or, um, or uh, cholesterol levels, uh, and, they're told, and they ask their doctor, how long do I have to take these medications? They're told forever we find that our bodies often have a remarkable capacity to begin healing and much more quickly than we had once realized if we can really treat the underlying cause, which is really the basis of our program. And I called it undo it because my favorite key on the keyboard has always been the undo button. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had something like that in our lives? And now we do. The program is basically um, eat well as a whole foods plant-based diet that's naturally low in fat and sugar, predominantly fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, soy products as they come in nature. Uh, move more, moderate exercise, some uh, some walking, some strength training, some stretching, uh, stress less, um, meditation and yoga, and love more, uh, right. psychosocial support, you know, the time that we spend with our friends and families and, right. and even our pets. You've had a great line I remember from listening to many of your talks that you say it's as important what you include as well as what you exclude. Isn't that somewhat what you're saying as well in terms of the, the total approach? Absolutely, because when you eat a diet that's a whole foods plant-based diet, it's, you're not only not eating many of the things that are harmful, but you're also getting literally 100,000 or more substances that are actually protective, that have anti-cancer, anti-heart disease, anti-aging properties, you know, phytochemicals, bioflavonoids, carotenoids, retinols, isoflavones, genistein, lycopene, omega-3 fatty acids, etc. And where do you find these? You find them mostly in fruits and vegetables. And so studies show that when people go from a a meat-based typical American diet or keto diet to a plant-based diet, not only are they reducing their risk, not only are they not increasing their risk, they're actually reducing it. There's a right. double benefit because these, 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 uh, these foods actually are protective. Not only are they not harmful, they're actually good for you. And I think people forget that concept that food really is medicine. It can be as powerful as a prescription drug, um, and, and we often lose sight of that. Uh, you reference your, your new book out with your wife, Anne, called Undo It, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Diseases. I, I love the title, Dean, but if, the, if lifestyle is so simple, why don't people actually make those uh, lifestyle changes? Uh, well, um, 
because we're we're taught, and just like you and I were taught in medical school, uh, to use fear to motivate people. You know, put that burger down, you're going to get a heart attack. Put that cigarette down, you're going to get lung cancer. And fear is not a sustainable motivator. What's motivating, what enables people to make sustainable changes is not fear of dying, it's joy of living. And, you know, and pleasure and meaning and joy. And again, because these biological mechanisms are so dynamic, when you make these changes, most people feel so much better so quickly, it reframes the reason for making them from fear of dying to joy of living. What do you say to those folks who say it's lack of willpower? People don't make the effort. Well, willpower will only take you so far. But, you know, for someone who has so much pain, they can't do all these things. And within a couple of weeks, they can do all of them. They say things like, well, you know, I like eating junk food, but not that much because what I gain is so much more than what I give up. Sure. You know, so and, and when people understand how dynamic these changes are and how quickly you can feel better and that what you gain is so much more than what you give up, that's what really makes it sustainable. You spend quite a bit of time, actually in all of your books, but particularly in this one, talking about love and loneliness. And you've talked about your own struggles. How does love and intimacy actually change our bodies, though? That's a good question. Uh, there's been uh, a real radical shift in our culture in the last 50 years with the breakdown of the social networks, you know, a sense of community and family and neighborhood and school and work and so on, where people used to really spend time with people. And study after study have shown that people who are lonely and depressed are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely from pretty much everything when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection community. And I, I don't know anything in medicine that has that powerful an impact. And so I've learned that it's not enough to just keep people information and expect them to change their diet or lifestyle. I mean, if it were, I mean, we're drowning in information with Google and so on, and every pack of cigarettes tells you it's not good for you. It's not like people don't know it's bad for them. But they say things like, you know, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes, and they're always there for me, and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? Or food fills that void, or fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain, or video games numb the pain. Or we have an opioid epidemic now, which is, again, just a, another manifestation of people trying to cope with their loneliness and their pain and to get through the day. You know, they, they, they spend too much time working, you know, they... And so part of the value of science, going back to the way we started, is that it can raise awareness that, you know, we tend to think that the time we spend with our loved ones and our friends and family is what we do. It's a luxury you do after you've done the important stuff. And what these studies teach us is that this is the important stuff. Now, you mentioned the microbiome in your book and that we're mostly microbes. And, and we've learned a lot about our gut bacteria in recent years. But how does the microbiome impact what we eat? And how does it impact it? what you recommend to, to people over the last few years? Well, we have, um, you know, over a, uh, 100 trillion organisms inside growing in our bodies, and that's what the microbiome is. And only about 10% of them are really intrinsically ours. And yet we're realizing that that balance of these organisms is what plays a huge uh, impact in our, in our health and our well-being, that a number of neurotransmitters are, are uh, secreted by this, that they live in a symbiotic relationship with us, and they've co-evolved with us. And what we found, again, is that these simple lifestyle changes can affect your microbiome in positive ways, and it just helps provide yet another mechanism. In fact, in the new book, I try to present a unifying theory, which is that, you know, you and I and all doctors were trained to view heart disease and diabetes and prostate and breast cancer and Alzheimer's disease as being fundamentally different diseases. 
But what, what we're learning is that they all share the same underlying biological mechanism, changes in the microbiome, changes in chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in telomeres and gene expression and angiogenesis and on and on. And each one of these mechanisms, in turn, is directly influenced by you know, what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. And so these are just different, the same disease manifesting in different forms. It's one reason why many people often have what are called comorbidities. They'll have heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol because they are all really the same thing. And although we live in an era where personalized medicine is being touted as being like the next big thing, we found that these same lifestyle changes could reverse or help prevent all of these different conditions because they're really the same disease just masquerading in different forms. Well, I, I want to thank you, Dean, for joining us today. And again, your new book with Anne called Undo It, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Diseases. Maybe you've gone your whole life eating peanuts or shrimp or wheat. Then one day, that food suddenly gives you an allergic reaction, a tight throat, swollen tongue, wheezing, trouble breathing, hives, or vomiting. It turns out that food allergies are more common among adults than many people realized, and many people get them even if they ate that food for years with no problems. A recent study of more than 40,000 people estimated that about 1 in 10 U.S. adults has a food allergy. Some of those people may have been allergic as children, but about a quarter of them developed their first food allergy as an adult. The most common problem food the researchers found? Shellfish. So are adult-onset food allergies on the rise? We wanted to get some more information on this from Dr. Neha Pathak, WebMD medical editor. Hey, Dr. Pathak. Hi, how are you? I'm doing all right. First off, tell us what's going on in the body when someone has an allergic reaction to food. So when you have a food allergy, your immune system sees a specific food or sometimes a specific substance in the food as something that's harmful. So your immune system then triggers cells to release IgE, which is a particular antibody that neutralizes that threat. And these antibodies hang out in your body, waiting to fight off that substance again in the future. So the next time you eat even the smallest amount of that particular food, the IgE antibodies are there, ready to pounce. So they sense it and they start a whole chain of events, starting with a signal to other cells in your immune system to release chemicals like histamine. And these are the chemicals that cause allergy symptoms that you experience and can happen all over your body. So like you talked about, the tingling or the itching in your mouth, hives on the skin, swelling in the lips and the face, wheezing because of airway issues, pain in the belly, nausea and vomiting. Severe reactions from food allergies can cause anaphylactic shock. So this is when the airways tighten so severely that you can't breathe, or your throat swells up so much, making it difficult to breathe. You can have a severe drop in your blood pressure, really fast heart rate, and all of that can cause dizziness, lightheadedness, and a loss of consciousness. So food allergy is really something that can become a medical emergency. So how is it that you can develop an allergy to something you've eaten pretty much your whole life with no problem, and then suddenly it's a problem? This is a great question. So we don't exactly know what causes your body to be fine with a certain food product your whole life and then all of a sudden react to it 
so severely. The best we can say is that sometimes something in your environment changes that maybe causes you to be exposed to that substance more than you were before. So you may have had an exposure to this in the past and maybe some mild reactions that really no one ever really took note of and now you are coming into contact with that substance a lot more so these reactions are happening more frequently or are more severe. And like you mentioned, a lot of the food allergies that are happening in adults are due to shellfish, peanuts, milk, and then finned fish is something else that they found in that study. And speaking of that study, uh, they estimated that about 10% of adults had a food allergy, but nearly 20% thought that they had one. And the researchers said the symptoms that those people mentioned may match better with other food-related issues like a sensitivity or intolerance. How are those different from a food allergy, and why is it that people can confuse those things? A physical reaction to specific foods can be common, and most times it's caused by a food intolerance or sensitivity rather than an actual food allergy. So a food intolerance can cause some of the same signs and symptoms as a food allergy, which is why a lot of people confuse the two. Like we talked about, in a true food allergy, there is an immune system reaction involving IgE and it usually affects multiple parts of your body causing the range of symptoms that we talked about, the wheezing, the hives, the nausea, the vomiting. And in some cases, it can lead to a severe or life-threatening reaction. With food intolerance, the symptoms are usually much less serious and they're limited to digestive issues. So nausea, vomiting, upset stomach. Sometimes people feel more tired or fatigued. It's not life-threatening like a food allergy can become. If you have a food intolerance, you can sometimes eat small amounts of that offending food without trouble, which is not the case for a food allergy. So for example, some people who are lactose intolerant might have a lot of trouble with milk, but they can, they can have ice cream or they can eat chocolate and say, oh, that doesn't really cause much of a problem. And one of the tricky things about diagnosing an intolerance versus an allergy is also that some people aren't necessarily having a, a problem with the food itself, but with additives that are added to that food. So in some instances, you might be fine eating that particular food and then you eat another version that has a different additive and you have more of a problem. Are there things that make you more likely to get a food allergy as an adult? I hate to say this, but again, we <laughs> don't exactly know. Not a lot of research has been done on this, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, we know, you know, certain things put you at higher risk. So if you have a family history of somebody that has asthma, eczema, hives, other types of allergies, that can put you at increased risk for developing a food allergy. If you yourself have a food allergy to one particular substance, that can put you at higher risk for developing a food allergy to another substance. Um, but really, we don't know why or how some people get triggered and other people's immune system don't. Hmm. So a little more work to be done there to figure that thing out. Um, I want to ask you about oral allergy syndrome. This is the reaction that happens when some people eat certain raw fruits or vegetables. They get maybe an itchy mouth, a scratchy throat, maybe some swelling. 
Is that the same thing as a food allergy? So another great question, and I totally get this. So myself, when especially with pineapple. So oral allergy syndrome affects a lot of people, and especially a lot of people that have hay fever or seasonal allergies. So with this particular condition, you eat certain types of fresh fruit, and that's the key. So not cooked fruit, vegetables, certain nuts, certain spices, and you get a local allergic reaction. So it's really concentrated in the mouth and the tongue. That's where you feel kind of itchy or uncomfortable. It doesn't feel right, some people say, and it's confined to that one place. The symptoms will go away if you cook the the fruit or vegetable, if you spit it out or you swallow it, and it doesn't last for very long. There are some rare cases, according to one study, where people that have this type of reaction can go on to have anaphylactic shock, and that happens in about 1% to 2% of people, but that's really uncommon. Why is it important to know if you have an allergy versus an intolerance or a different problem? I think some people maybe just feel like they can kind of go through life and maybe avoid the food and be okay. But why is it important why is it important to really know exactly what your issue is? Sure. So if you have a food allergy, like we talked about, you could be at risk for a life-threatening allergic reaction, anaphylaxis, even if you've had past reactions that are mild. So this changes a lot about how you're going to have to manage this condition, right? So you need to talk to your doctor, learn about the signs of recognizing a severe allergic reaction, figure out what you have to do if you're in the middle of a severe allergic reaction, and you probably will need to carry uh, an emergency epinephrine shot for treating yourself in the event of an emergency. That's really different if you have a food intolerance. You don't need that same level of treatment. And that's not to say that your doctor can't help you with other ways of dealing with the issue, but you are not gonna be in the same situation as needing an EpiPen or an epinephrine shot to carry around with you if you have a food intolerance. Your doctor can work with you about ways to If you have a lactose intolerance, take a medication like Lactade and things like that. So you really just need to know if it could be a life-threatening problem that you need to be ready to handle if it gets that bad. Right. Okay. So what can you do if you think you're allergic to a food but you're just not sure? If you have a reaction after eating a particular food, you really want to talk to your doctor or allergist to find out whether this is a true food allergy or a food intolerance. At the same time, you want to try to avoid that substance or food that you suspect. Some people try elimination diets and then add this back um, slowly, add different foods back slowly as they try to figure out what it is. So you stop eating it entirely and then maybe like try? Try to add it back. The thing is you don't necessarily want to do that if you suspect a food allergy. You really want to be working with a doctor and have an emergency shot available if you're ruling out a true food allergy. So that's why it's so important. If you feel like you have a problem with a food, talk to the doctor first, avoid that food, and then you'll figure out the best strategy of diagnosing whether it's actually an allergy and then what to do in the future to deal with the problem. Great information. Dr. Pathak, thank you as always. Thank you so much. St. Patrick's Day is just around the corner. 
If you're planning to celebrate with green beer, whiskey, or all of the above, you'll need more than a four-leaf clover to keep a hangover at bay. All you need to do is brush up on what works and what doesn't to avoid that I got overserved feeling the next day. First up, is it true that you only get a hangover if you totally binged on booze? Not so. Just a couple of drinks can trigger a headache and other hangover symptoms for some people. If you're out socializing, it does help to have a glass of water or something else non-alcoholic after a beer or other drink. It slows you down, so you drink less overall, and it helps you stay hydrated. And what about the old saying, liquor before beer? Actually, it's the amount of alcohol you have, not the order of your drinks, that matters most. Standard drinks, that's a 12-ounce glass of beer, a 5-ounce glass of wine, or 1.5 ounces of liquor, have about the same amount of alcohol. Don't be fooled by the size of your drink, or by any saying about alcohol use that includes the phrase, never fear. So, does it help to have some food, maybe carbs like pasta, before you go to bed after a night on the town? Wrong. Eating at bedtime, after you're already drunk, is no help. Food has to be in your stomach before happy hour to have any impact. And although any food can slow down how fast your body absorbs alcohol, fat does it best. But still, too much is too much. One bedtime tip that does help, drink water to fight dehydration. All right, if you know you overdid it, does it help to take a pain reliever before you go to sleep? Nope. Over-the-counter painkillers peak in about four hours, so a bedtime dose won't help by the time you wake up. A better plan is to take those meds when you first wake up, but be careful. Don't take acetaminophen, that's the active ingredient in Tylenol, after a night of drinking. The combination could hurt your liver. Always follow the instructions on the label with any medicine you take. Maybe you'd rather turn to coffee the morning after for a quick kick from caffeine. It sounds like a good idea, but the caffeine could backfire. It can narrow your blood vessels and may actually make your hangover worse. It's best to sip water and sports drinks to counter dehydration and replace lost electrolytes, especially if you threw up. And you know the old saying about things that sound too good to be true, right? That's also true when it comes to herbal remedies in this case. British researchers reviewed studies on so-called hangover pills, such as yeast and artichoke extract. They found no good evidence that these supplements worked. Another team studied a supplement made from prickly pear cactus and found that it may curb nausea and dry mouth from hangovers, but not the dreaded headache. Sorry, the only proven cure is time. Are you hoping to sleep it off? It might make for a rocky night. While alcohol makes you feel sleepy and may help you doze off more quickly, too much messes with your sleep quality. You get less time in REM cycles and you tend to wake up too soon. And if you drank heavily, a hangover might strike in the last part of the night, making you too uncomfortable to get back to sleep. And if you were planning to turn to the old hair of the dog for relief, think again. More alcohol in the morning does nothing but postpone a hangover. The worst symptoms hit when your blood alcohol level drops to zero. And if you have a drink at breakfast, this moment will just come later in the day. And if you find you can't function without a wake-up buzz, you should talk to your doctor about getting help for alcohol use disorder. The best advice is to keep your drinking moderate, yes, even on St. Pat's Day. That's up to one drink a day for women and two for men. You should also know the signs of alcohol poisoning in case you see someone who needs emergency help. Those symptoms are confusion or stupor, vomiting, seizures, slow irregular breathing, and low body temperature or bluish skin. Don't blow off these symptoms as the price of partying hard. 
If you see someone vomit multiple times or pass out after drinking heavily, there's a risk of severe dehydration or brain damage. Call 911. Now, our tweak of the week. Pack a workout bag, or at least a pair of shoes, to keep in your car. It'll come in handy if you get a chance to get moving spontaneously, say, while your kid is at soccer practice, or on your lunch break, or if you get an unexpected bit of free time, like if you have to cancel an appointment, or you want to let traffic calm down before your commute. You'll be ready to seize the moment and get a workout in. Thanks for listening to Health Now this week. Take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It helps other people find out about the show. And don't forget, WebMD has tons of great content on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now.